Let me add my welcome to Rob's. It's lovely to have you with us if you're visiting today, especially as we have folk away on holiday. We spent the last two years looking together at two fairly chunky books of the Bible. And before we dive into another big chunky book, uh, another gospel in the new year, we're going to slow things down for the next six weeks and uh, spend a bit of time looking carefully at the Lord's Prayer, the prayer Jesus taught his disciples to pray. So something very different, a different pace. I wonder if you'd turn with me to Matthew chapter 6. And for today, we're really just looking at a part of verse 9. But I'll read verses 5 to 15. You'll find that on page 811 in the church Bibles. Matthew chapter 6 from verse 5. When you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Let's bow our heads for a moment. Loving Heavenly Father, Thank you that this morning you, our Father, speak, and we, your hungry and dependent children, get to listen. Please, we pray, would you open our hearts and unstop our ears and give us all the attention we need that we might learn from our Father of love. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Sometimes church can be a scary place especially if you are very small and very shy. And I know we're a week from Halloween, but let me tell you a terrifying tale set one ordinary Sunday in our very own Edinburgh North Church. It all began normally enough, just sitting with your family, singing about Jesus. Children's church, that took a bit more courage that Sunday, but there were lots of little friends around and a kind teacher to reassure you. The terrifying moment, as always, came when you were released back into this main hall. Suddenly, adults were everywhere. Cauldrons at the back of the room bubbled away with caffeinated potions. You couldn't see through the crowd. It was just a wall of unidentified knees. Terrifying. A little bit like that old movie, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. Do you remember that one? Everything is very large and very unfamiliar, and any moment some giant ant might appear and ask what you learned in Sunday Club. And then to your relief, you spot your dad right at the front of the church. He has his back to you, but he's talking to your mum. It must be him. 
So you make a break for it. Diving through the crowd, dodging ogres and chair stackers and all manner of terrifying grown-ups. And finally you reach him. Security. And you cling to his legs and at last everything is safe. All is well. You look up lovingly into his great big father-like eyes. And that is when the horror music begins to play in your head. Because you realize those legs you're clinging to don't belong to your dad at all. The man talking to your mum is the minister. And now you're hugging him. <laughs> well, that is an occupational hazard. I reckon it happens at least once a year. And think how cruel it is for me. I get that brief moment of joy when the little child who normally seems so shy is delighted to see her pastor. And then the crushing disappointment as the look of absolute horror breaks out on her poor little face. Now, here's the point. Who we think we're holding on to makes all the difference in the world. And we cannot pray without being faced with that question. Who am I to you? Who is it you think you're holding on to? What sort of God we believe we're clinging to as we pray is the single factor which will shape our whole prayer life. Not the techniques we've learnt or the words we've memorized or our ability to express ourselves warmly and fluently and eloquently. No, the factor that determines the shape of our prayer life is what we believe about the person we're clinging to. If we believe in a boring, insipid God, we will pray boring, insipid prayers. If we believe in a cold, impersonal God, we'll pray cold, impersonal prayers. If we believe in a weak, miserly God, we'll ask for weak, miserly asks. If we're unsure that God is really listening or that he bothers about the lives of his ordinary people or that he really is upholding the universe right now as we speak, then praying will always feel tedious and pointless and painful. So who is he to you? Even to speak to him, we have to answer that question, don't we? Because we've got to call him something. We need some sort of posture as we come to him. Will we call him Lord Almighty? Will we light a candle and clutch some beads and recite a magic formula? Will we wash the sin and the pollution off our bodies with water and then bow down on a prayer mat facing towards Mecca? Will we shave our heads and close our eyes and empty our minds and try to connect with the universe. Who am I to you? Well, wonderfully, Jesus answers that question in three little words at the start of his prayer. He is our heavenly Father. And those three words shape everything we will ever learn about prayer. There is never a time you grow out of this Lord's Prayer. J.C. Ryle said that it contains the germ of everything the most advanced saint could desire. All Christian truth buried away in this. And at the very beginning of his prayer, Jesus puts the truth that is the most basic to all real prayer, that the God we are clinging to is both fatherly and heavenly. And best of all, he's ours. 
So do you see what he's teaching us then with the way he opens this prayer? He's teaching us that if we're praying to his father, then we're clinging to the right legs. Three wonderful truths then from these opening words that I want us to wrap our hearts around this morning and never ever grow out of. Truths that amount to help us pray with loving trust. And the first is simply this, we pray because we're loved. God is our Father. And that means he loves us. When we put our hand in his and we speak to him, he loves that. Which of you parents doesn't love that? The reason God listens to us is simply because he loves us. And if you hear that truth and it doesn't jolt you a little bit, then it might just mean you've got a little too cozy with Christianity. Because the first question we've got to ask is, what gives us the right to use a word like Father when we're talking to the God of the universe? What gives us the right? Sometimes churchy people say things which sound like motherhood and apple pie, but they really aren't that helpful. We're all God's children, for example. Is that really true? Certainly, the Bible gives extraordinary value to every human being. All of us are stamped with God's image. But we're his creatures, not his children. And we're rebel creatures at that. By nature, fallen human beings are not on friendly terms with our maker. We're born into this world as his enemies, estranged from the good God by our sinful hearts. And it is not an okay thing to presume on familiarity when it's not there. We're frantically trying to explore ways to fund a church building when the time comes. Imagine I was to slouch into the boardroom of some big city bank and kick my feet up on the table and look at the chairman and say, what's up, bro? Fancy a chat? That would not go well, would it? Security would have me in a headlock before the sentence was out. Try that sort of nonsense in the White House. You'll be lucky to escape with your life. And heaven has a far more terrifying set of bouncers than any secret service. Flaming angels standing at the gates. It is not okay to presume on familiarity. So for a prayer that is still so familiar to so many today, this is a dangerous way to start, isn't it? What gives you the right to march in here and talk to me like a father? Make no mistake, that right had to be given to us. It wasn't ours. And yet here is Jesus encouraging us to take it. Well, of course, the answer lies with him. To all who receive Jesus, John's gospel tells us, to all who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Jesus had every right to pray this prayer. He is the son God has loved from before time began. The eternal son, the apple of God's eye, the son who always did what was right, who always made his father proud. Jesus is God's son by his very nature. And the shocking thing here is that he doesn't just come to us like that and pray for us. My father, please be merciful to my friends. No, he 
encourages his disciples to pray with him. Our Father. We are just getting to the stage in our family when I come in from the study and I find all sorts of unexpected kids in the house. And it's a lovely thing when your kids' friends feel so at home that they can just march in without asking and plop down on the armchair. And even then, their relationship with you is a lot more remote than what Jesus is giving us here. You're still someone else's parents. You're never quite theirs. But that familiarity, walking in without even knocking, helping yourself to food in the fridge, that gives you a little glimpse of it, doesn't it? It's lovely. I belong in your house. I've got some kind of place in this family that I don't even need to question because I love your son and so you love me. If you belong to Jesus, then this prayer of his belongs to you. He's given you the right to pray it. We can come to God as a father because he has adopted us into his family by grace so that all the love he has for his perfect son Jesus he has for you. Israel's king, the Messiah, he was often called the son in the Old Testament, wasn't he? It was a royal title, sonhood, because God's people were always waiting for a king like this, a king like Jesus, a true son who could wrap us all up in his father's love and bring us into his family. When the fullness of time had come, says Paul, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons, real sons with every right of law and love that adoption involves. Now, what does that mean for our prayers? Well, it means that we are praying to someone who actually cares about what we have to say, doesn't it? We don't just have the right to address him. It rejoices something fundamental to his nature when we do. How many of you dads will watch your daughters growing up and growing a little bit more distant and then resent it if they ask to spend time with you? Never. They have access to us that nobody else in all the world will ever have. Not simply because of some legal rights, but because they have a claim on our hearts that is irrevocable. There's one five-and-a-half-year-old little boy who still creeps into our bed several times a week. You wake up at 4 a.m., and there he is, like some nightmarish nighttime ninja. And after five-and-a-half years, that can be utterly exhausting. But at the same time, you know it won't always be like that. And a part of you wouldn't change it for the world. He's your son. He trusts you. That's lovely. He just wants to be close to you. There is no one else on the planet he could pull that nonsense on and get away with it. But you aren't just anyone. You're his dad. And he has the kind of access to you because of that that he doesn't need to think twice about using. And in the context, isn't that the whole point of this prayer? Look up at verse 7. The Lord's Prayer is given to us as a contrast. All over the world, verse 7, there are religious people who think that God will hear them because of their many words, the way they pray. 
If I just get the technique right, I can twist God's arm. If I just make it long enough, he'll cave in. Maybe an all-night prayer meeting will show I'm really on fire for him. I deserve to be heard. If I can just say the right words in the right way, I'll manipulate God into listening to me. But no, says Jesus, don't pray like that. Pray like this. Our Father. If we want to grow as prayer warriors, we don't need to work on our patter. We need to dwell on our paternity. Learn more about the one we're praying to. He hears you simply because he loves you. Because he is good and he's made you his son in Jesus. So this is a prayer for Christians, isn't it? Young and old, but Christians. It would be the folly of madness and presumption, says John Calvin, to pray this Lord's Prayer without coming through Jesus. Because it's only in him that we're acknowledged as sons like this. But what an insane privilege it is that he gives us to pray to a father. We pray because we're loved. Wonderful truth number two, we pray because we're loved together. He is our father. Which means that whenever we come to him, we come as part of a great big family. I guess we often think of prayer as me time, don't we? Our whole evangelical language of quiet times kind of reinforces that. And this is a very basic observation, but the Lord's Prayer is a corporate prayer, which is strange because where does Jesus expect us to be praying like this? Often, presumably in church, when we're gathered together as a family, but not always. Look up at verse 6. Don't be like the hypocrites. Don't pray for show. Hide in your bedroom and close the door. But because we get that ridiculous privilege in that moment of praying to God as Father, that prayer will always necessarily have a special kind of dynamic. It means that even when we're completely on our own, prayer is a corporate thing. There's something so precious about spending a little bit of one-on-one -on -one time with the kids, making it special. It's something I wish I did more of. Just taking one child out for breakfast and giving them all your attention. It is so valuable, time like that. But even on a little daddy date like that, when it's just you and her, you never quite leave the family behind, do you? Even the fact they're not there just draws attention to them. The things you talk about often revolve around them. Now you can finally help me think of what on earth will buy mummy for Christmas. In a very similar way, we never, ever relate to our Father in heaven in a way that he stops being a father we share with a whole family of other children. First of all, we share him with Jesus, his natural son. We say our Father because we have to acknowledge that we pray through him, our elder brother. But that adoption, it doesn't just change things on God's side. It changes things for us. One of the many beautiful things we're given when Jesus brings us into his family is a new name. We're Christians now, God's children. And that means our prayer is going to be shaped by a whole different set of values and longings. Each other's values, each other's longings. 
We care above all for the family name, the family mission. It's why the first half of this Lord's Prayer isn't about us at all. It's all about God, his glory, his name. Because the thing we most want to pray for together is this wonderful father who has made us his children in undeserved goodness and love. His family name is the first thing on our hearts. The theologian Jim Packer put it like this. These are profoundly true words. All right-minded praying starts with a long look Godward and a deliberate lifting up of one's heart to give thanks and adore. You cannot say the words, Our Father, without adoring love for this one who has adopted you. To pray those words is to worship him. That's the reason we pray them together, because when we meet together, we want to worship. It's what we're all about. And then, because we care about him and his name and his values, we care about each other, our brothers and sisters. So we want to pray with them, and we want to pray for them. If we want to claim his family name and share his love, then it means we share a whole heap of brothers and sisters too, all of them made into sons. And so every single time we say the word, our father, we're reminding ourselves that this is a father who will not let us monopolize his love. Prayer can never be just for me now or even just for my little church, because this father doesn't play favorites. He loves us together in Jesus. Well, all that is wonderful. It is wonderful to know God cares. It's wonderful to know he cares for us all, but is that enough? Is that enough to help you pray? If you've been around church for much time at all, I guess you'll be drowning in people who care for you. Maybe you've had times in all your life when that caring almost feels overwhelming. So many people who care. Your health is taken away and it's scary. You lose someone you love and your heart is broken and all around you are people who care very, very deeply. But the truth is there's nothing they can do. Most of us have been on the other side of that, haven't we? We've made the meal. We've tried to be there. We've offered to watch the kids. And you so desperately want to do more. You care, but you don't know how. Caring on its own is wonderful, but it's not enough, is it? We have one person close to our family who is probably the most empathetic human being I've ever come across. She would want you to pour your heart out to her all day and all night. If you don't, she finds it deeply upsetting, as if you don't trust her love unless you share all your sorrows. She cares. Is that what prayer is like, just pouring out your heart to someone who's impotent but very loving? If we think like that, it will put us right off. It's draining. And that is why we need to know not just that God is our Father, but what kind of Father he is. We pray to a God who is not just fatherly, but heavenly. Everything that is best about human fatherhood comes from him. It's just a shadow of his love, but he's more than that. It's easy to take a word like father and kind of tame it, make it twee and small. 
But if we do that, we'll lose this third wonderful truth about the God we cling to when we pray. We pray because we're loved by a Lord, not a daddy. God is not your daddy. It was trendy for a while to say that the word Abba, the Aramaic word for father that you see a few times in the New Testament, meant something like daddy. And certainly it is a word full of intimacy and trust. But I think it's been shown beyond doubt it is also a word full of respect and fear. It's respectful intimacy. And that is definitely true of the Greek word father used here. A father is the ruler of his house. And this father, this father is the ruler of all heaven. And that is what makes this prayer such an insanely bold thing to pray. Who is this father who's full of such tender, personal care for each and every one of his children? He is the very same sovereign God who dwells in the highest of heavens, the self-existent, eternal, transcendent Lord of time and space. That is the one who says to you, What's on your heart, son? I'm listening. Don't be shy. I've got all the time in the world for you. So those two words, heavenly father, do you see how they hold together both a radical distinction and a wonderful closeness? Because he's our father, he cares. But because he's our heavenly father, he can actually do something with all that love. He holds the world and everything in it in his hands, everything we could possibly need for body and soul. He is radically distinct from us. Don't mistake it. When Jesus says that this father is in heaven, he doesn't mean he's contained by the heavens. He means something even bigger. It separates him, Calvin says, from all the ranks of creatures. The heaven of heavens cannot contain him because God is not the kind of being who's limited by a body. He's not contained anywhere. His fatherly eye is on everything at every moment with all his full attention. Again, Jim Packer put it so helpfully. Heaven is not a different place. God isn't shut up in some place out there. No, heaven is not a different place. It's a different plane. He is radically other to everything in the created realm. And that means that while we approach him with confidence, we've also got to pray with reverence, with what our catechism calls all heavenly affections. He's no daddy. A heavenly father demands heavenly respect. But that is good, good news, because it makes him someone worth praying to. Maybe you're wrestling right now with your own relationship with a human father or you're a dad and you're longing to connect with a child and somehow you just never get through well bottle those sorrows those frustrations just for a moment everything that isn't right in that human relationship do you see how all those longings we have come because we're made for him we're made to know what true fatherhood should be a heavenly father is not like our fathers. He is patient, extremely patient. He is godly, literally. 
He doesn't swear or pick his nose or walk around in his pants or treat you unfairly. He's strong, so strong, he will never grow tired or weak. He's never too busy to spend time with us, never too selfish or too tired or too wrapped up in his own work to listen, never too distracted to be there with us with all his attention, never too picky or too critical, never unable to understand how we feel, never unsure what to do about something, never too stingy to do the best thing, never too weak to do the perfect thing. He never regrets. He doesn't ever, ever get it wrong with us. If he's angry, it is just the right amount of anger. He doesn't lose it with his children and then wish he hadn't because this father cannot lose it. He's perfect. He is the most wonderful father you could ever know because anything that we've been allowed to see in this world in our fathers that was truly fatherly came from him. The awesome, transcendent God who stoops down to listen as we lisp out our prayers and cannot wait to comfort us and care for us and rescue us from ourselves. So is who is he then? Who is he to you? Answer that right, and prayer will never be the same. Jesus says, when you speak to him, do it like this. Our Father in heaven, because he's a father, we know we're praying to someone who loves us. Because he's our Father, we remember that he loves us by grace, because he's adopted us in Jesus. We share him with Jesus, and so our prayers are wrapped up in his and with those of a whole family of brothers and sisters. And because he's our heavenly father, we remember that we're praying to a God who can love us perfectly. A father who is out of this world, who can actually do something with all that love, like send his son to claim you back and make you his very own. Let's bow our heads. Our Father in heaven, what an insane privilege it is that we dare speak those words to you in loving, trusting prayer. Lord, we rejoice that we know you, the almighty, eternal God, are looking on us now with all the affection that you have for Jesus, a better man and a better brother than we will ever be in this life. Father, we rejoice that in this room we get a little taste of the family you've joined us to by the blood of your own dear son. And we adore you together for making us each other's by making us yours. Help us, Lord, together to rest in your love and take pride in your family name and to long for its honor and worth to be seen in this world to the praise of your fatherly grace. Amen.